Several years ago on a tour to Israel, we were able to visit the ancient site of Shiloh. God was worshipped at the tabernacle in Shiloh for 369 years. It was there that Eli the priest raised a young boy named Samuel. Today, Shiloh is in the West Bank under Palestinian control. Israelis consider it hostile territory. In fact, our tour company agreed to go to Shiloh, but only in an armored bus, just in case we were greeted by rocks. Shiloh is a few miles south of Sychar or Shechem. Today, this is the site of a major Palestinian city called Nablus. The Bible refers to the region as Samaria. And Samaria was as difficult a destination in Jesus' day as it is today. The terrain is hilly and mountainous. And there were hostilities then, just as there are now. Not with Palestinians, but with the rival Samaritans. I'm surprised Jesus and his disciples didn't take an armored bus. The preferred path from Galilee to Jerusalem was further east, down the Jordan Valley not through the rocky region of Samaria. A pilgrim traveled through Samaria only if there was a pressing need to do so. Which brings us to John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And notice the imperative. John tells us he needed to go through Samaria. Apparently, Jesus obeyed an inner urge, a mental must. He knew it was God's will to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Your watch would have read high noon. Jesus and his band had been hiking steep terrain all morning long. Samaria was in the mountains. Now he slips off his sandals by the well to rest his feet. He sends his disciples into town for coffee and bagels. Verse 7, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now today, friction in the area is between Jewish settlers and local Palestinians, but a similar animosity existed in Jesus' day between Jews and Samaritans. When Assyria conquered Samaria seven centuries earlier, the Assyrians bred foreigners with the surviving Israelis. The Jews in Jerusalem had always viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. These ostracized people had developed their own rival religion, their own priesthood. They had even erected their own temple on nearby Mount Gerizim. In fact, there was such hatred between Samaritans and Jews that the Jews prayed no Samaritan would rise in the resurrection. In John 8 verse 48, The Jews try to insult Jesus by saying, you're a Samaritan and have a demon. 
Hey, in, first, in the first century, Jews and Samaritans got along about as well as Jews and Palestinians get along in the 21st century. And yet Jesus here says to this woman, give me a drink. Now remember, it was noontime. Midday in Samarita, Samaria, the temps reach as high as 90 plus degrees. This woman would come for water usually in the cool early morning hours, never at noon. The only reason a woman would visit a well at noontime is if she wanted to avoid the other ladies in the town. Apparently, this was this woman's motivation. She had lived an immoral life. She was frowned on by her peers. They had sentenced her to shame and isolation. And so she comes to the well at noon. And it was shocking that Jesus would speak to this woman. You need to know that a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman were on the opposite ends of the first century social ladder. And not only were Jews biased against Samaritans, they were also prejudiced against women. In fact, one rabbi had taught, it is better the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. This is why this lady did a double take when Jesus asked her, give me a drink. And John notes the disciples' absence here. I think the tension would have been worse had the disciples been present. He says, but his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Well, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She recognized the anomaly. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. Living water. It's swirling, not stagnant water. It's water that's clean and clear. And it's the term that Jesus coined to describe the life of his spirit. When you choose Jesus, friend, when you're born from above, refreshment is the result. Living water is like a cool drink on a hot day. A thirst gets slaked. An awe comes over your soul. Living water quenches a deep down thirst that all humans possess. It's a spiritual satisfaction. But the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now today Jacob's well is in a church basement. It's been measured. It's 138 feet deep. The lady was right. This was a deep well. And she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus lacked a dipper and a bucket to draw the water. Where was he going to get this living water? Understand, as with Nicodemus, Jesus is talking figuratively. The woman, though, is taking him literally. And then verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And here is a verse that you should write over the top of everything this world offers us. The luxury car, the latest gadget, 
the fancy clothes, the fine wine, the romantic getaway. Get it, and you'll thirst again. It might produce a bloated, full feeling for a time, but nothing permanent gets resolved. Hey, in a short time, you'll be thirsting again. Say you finally get married, you'll thirst again. Hey, you get pregnant. Trust me, you'll thirst again. You get that high-paying promotion. Hey, you'll still thirst again. How often have you said, I'll be happy when? Then the wind comes and you're thirsting again. Realize physical stuff can never satisfy a spiritual need. Never. The city of Marseille, France is home to a series of sculptures by artist Bruno Catalano. The statues are of travelers who are missing a piece of themselves. These people are not all there. There's a hole in them. And Bruno's statues could be the poster child for the whole human race. Comedian Eddie Murphy once told People Magazine, I don't think there's anyone who feels like there isn't something missing in their life. No matter who you are, no matter where you go, no matter what you do or how much you get, it doesn't fill the hole inside. Not for long. Jesus predicted for us all, you will thirst again. And Jesus goes on to say, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The spirit of the Christian becomes an artesian well bubbling up from within, bubbling up with a transcendent joy and an inner harmony and a fervent love. God's spirit in the believer causes living water to well up. Jesus alone can quench our deep down thirst. See, you and I were made for God. The hole inside us is Jesus-shaped. Only Jesus can fill your inner emptiness. See, here's another name for living water. Jesus also calls it everlasting life. It's not just long life. It's a full, deep, abundant life. It speaks of quality, not just quantity. And it's available today to any person who opens up their heart to Jesus. And then verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's taking the bait, isn't she? At least she's curious now. In the words of the old Sprite commercial, she's obeying her thirst. Give me this water, she says. But there's a prerequisite that she has to meet. It's called repentance. And Jesus explains to her what that repentance looks like in her context. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus knew she had no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had a you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. 
Notice Jesus didn't consider her current live-in to be her husband. Just because a couple lives together, it doesn't mean that they're married in God's eyes. Jesus tells her, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. God recognizes and honors the commitment of marriage, not the convenience of shacking up. Jesus wants to quench this woman's thirst, but first he needs to deal with her rebellion. When she receives the living water, she'll need a new lifestyle to sustain it. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. He had told her her life history, and it dawns on her that there's something special about this Jesus. And yet notice verse 19. What does she do next? She changes the subject. And isn't this what we often do? Jesus pokes at a sin in our life. He wants to address an issue in our hearts. And what do we do? We shift topics. That's why the woman says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jews worshiped in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, Samaritans on the nearby Mount Gerizim. Who was right? Understand, this woman is just trying to avoid the truth by arguing theology. That's what a lot of people try to do. But Jesus answers her question in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain there in Samaria nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, Jesus settles the controversy. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews, not the Samaritans, were the custodians of the Scripture and of the sacrificial system and of the proper worship of God. In essence, Jesus is saying, there is a right and a wrong way to worship God. And the Jews have been right, but it's a mute point now, for a change is coming. Verse 23, for the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. With the coming of Messiah, changes occur. Jesus was now God's temple on earth, replacing the temple on both mountains. And God will no longer dwell in stone houses, but in trusting hearts. You know, today, whenever I've had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem and its sacred wailing wall, the last remnant of the old temple, The Holy Spirit has always spoken to me the same verse, verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Logistics no longer matter. Holy days and holy spaces are now irrelevant. True worship is now a matter of the heart. For Jesus said, God is spirit. God lacks physical restraints. He has no properties that confine him to a single location. God is everywhere at all times. And Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman to stop limiting God to a mountaintop or to a temple or to a church building for that matter. He's no longer found in brick and mortar, but in spirit and truth. The true God is understood biblically 
and he's experienced spiritually. That means that no matter your location, no matter your surroundings, all you need to connect to God is an open Bible and an open heart. Real worship occurs by the Spirit through his word. And then in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. To this Samaritan woman, Jesus is clear. He claims to be the Messiah of Israel. And at this point, his disciples show up. They make it back with their bagels and their bigotry. And they marvel that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Yet that's what they thought. Oh, they were still tainted with racism, with misogyny. They've still yet to grasp the level ground that all people now have in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went by her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Now remember, exposure to the townspeople was the thing that she tried to avoid by coming to the well at noon. But now she seeks it. Shame no longer torments this lady from outcast to broadcast. Notice a single slurp of living water has given her boldness. Once she had God's forgiveness, she became oblivious to her own past. She's now caught up in Jesus. All that matters is sharing him. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. Well, how far off they were from what concerned Jesus. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, Jesus talks figuratively while the disciples are interpreting him literally. Jesus fed on the will of God. Normally, whenever I think of soul food, I envision turnip greens, black-eyed peas, collards, and gizzards, and pig's feet. But hey, the real soul food, the real soul food is to hear and do God's will. Then verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. It was about four months until the actual harvest, but Jesus was focused on a harvest of souls, beginning with this thirsty Samaritan. This woman had lost at love five times. And yet Jesus had given her a new heart and a new start. And this is the harvest that continues today. He's still giving people new starts. In fact, next, Jesus talks about our participation in that harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, 
that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Sometimes we sow seeds of truth in fertile minds. At other times we reap decisions and witness the sprouting of new faith. Sometimes we sow, sometimes we reap. Jesus says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And he may have been referring to John the Baptist here. John had sowed seed. He had set the stage for Jesus and his disciples. They were now reaping from John's labor. Perhaps John had even influenced the Samaritan woman. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. These townsfolk had seen the change in this lady and they believed what she had said about Jesus. You know, she didn't know a lot about the gospel, but her life had changed, proving the old adage, one witness with enthusiasm is better than 99 persons with knowledge. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Jesus loved them enough to hang out and, and obviously straighten out their confused theology. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Samaritans didn't just take the woman's word, they believed in Jesus personally. Now after the two days, he departed from there and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. This sick son was 16 miles away. Capernaum was on the, on the lake. Uh, on the northern coast of the lake. But when the nobleman heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. He, he walked those 16 miles. And he implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus was frustrated with the Jews' obsession with miracles. They clamored for signs. They lusted for the spectacular. Many of these Jews were more interested in a seat at the circus than in a commitment to the Christ. But this official, he cared only for his son. For the nobleman said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. And so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. But here is where the plot thickens. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. 
And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Now when Jesus turned the water into wine, he did instantly what it takes nature years to do, turn water into wine. Now he heals a boy 16 miles away and reveals his power over distance. Apparently, neither time nor space were consequential to Jesus. He is the Lord of both time and space. Neither time nor distance is a problem for him. And then chapter 5. And this there was, and this there was, after this there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't tell us which feast. It was just a feast. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda means house of grace. Now, the Sheep Gate was just inside the northeast wall of the city of Jerusalem. The area there consisted of two pools that were built over a hot springs. These pools were surrounded by this colossal colonnade, and it was the site of a public bath. But a spiritual phenomena had changed the use of the pools. Verse 3. In these five porches lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And once you had exhausted your doctors and the cures available to you, these pools became your only hope. They became the infirmary for the hopeless. A story had begun that an angel would splash, and then the first person in the pool after the splash would be healed. There had to be some truth to the story, or there wouldn't have been a crowd expecting such a healing. It was likely rare, but there had been miracles. Well, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. He was a lame man. He may have suffered polio as a young child, or perhaps he was the victim of some injury. But he had been crippled a long, long time, 38 years. Imagine never having taken a walk, never having pushed a plow, This man had spent four decades at floor level looking at people's kneecaps. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Well, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Notice he doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Instead, he's just full of excuses of why this won't work for him, why he hasn't been healed. You see, it's possible to get so used to a plague or an infirmity in your life that you become reluctant to turn it loose. Think of the alcoholic. He's destroying his life. 
But the stronghold of his habit is greater than his willingness to change. See, after 38 years, it's easy just to lie down and give up on life. You can capitulate to your condition and give up on the dream of a better life. That's what this man had done. This man by the pool blamed everyone else for beating him out of his own miracle. He had nothing but excuses. But the real problem was that he had lost faith. He's waiting on the waters to be stirred. But Jesus first has to stir up his idle faith. And so Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Here is a man bedridden for 38 years, yet Jesus tells him to walk. Understand, all God's miracles begin with impossible commands. This is just God's way. He asks us to believe the unbelievable, and when we do, he releases the power to affect that change. In a micro millisecond, between the time this man's faith prompted the nerve impulse from his brain to reach his legs, God supplied him the street that he previously lacked. This lame man who needed help just to crawl into the pool is now walking home and carrying his bedroll. What an amazing thing has happened. Now, it's also important to note that there were other needy people at the pool that day, but Jesus didn't heal them. And we wonder why. Of course, the answer is (laughs) we don't know why. Certainly, none of us deserve God's healing. Any healing is an act of grace. The fact that God heals one yet allows a more godly person to die is a mystery. The bottom line is that healing is God's prerogative. God remains sovereign. and It's not for us to question His purposes. We just need to rejoice in His blessing. And notice the last line of verse 9. It's fascinating. And that day was the Sabbath. Jesus could have healed this man six other days of the week. But he chose the last day. Shabbat. Verse 8. When Jesus tells the lame man, take up your bed and walk, he uses an interesting Greek word for walk. It means to walk around, to take a stroll. In other words, this man is to show off Jesus' miracle. He says, I want you to walk around so everybody sees you and knows what happened to you. At times, the angel might have stirred up the waters, but here Jesus stirs up some controversy among these legalistic Jews. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And this is religion in a nutshell. Let's ignore the miracle. Let's ignore the relief that has come to this man who suffered for 38 years. And let's criticize its recipient for carrying his bedroll on a holy day. How silly and stupid can you get? Let's focus on the trivial and miss the vital. Well, The Jews questioned the former lame man. And he answered them. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. 
Then they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now now notice this, this is so important. Jesus returns to finish what he started in this man. He didn't just heal his lame legs so those legs could run again to sin. This man's healing was the first step in his cleansing. And the same is true for us. Jesus doesn't save you just to watch you revert back to your former lifestyle. He tells this man and us, sin no more. And then verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Since the father works on the Sabbath, so does the son. I mean, in a family business, if it's open on Saturdays, all the family works. Hey, recall when God created the universe. He did so in six days. On the seventh or on the Sabbath, he rested. But man's sin shattered God's rest. And ever since, God has been working relentlessly to redeem fallen people. Here in healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is just following his Father's lead. He says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Remember the Jewish mindset. We've gone over this before. Remember how the Jews thought the son of an animal is a animal. The son of a human is a human. Thus, the son of God is God. And for Jesus to refer to God as his father He was actually claiming to be God. Now, from here to the end of chapter 5, Jesus affirms his deity. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus was no lone wolf. Everything he did was the Father's will. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You know, the strongest proof for Jesus' deity was his mastery over death. Ultimately, his own death. You know, the rabbis taught that Yahweh held three great keys. The key to open the heavens and to give rain. The key to open the womb and give conception. And the key to open the grave and raise the dead. Three times in Jesus' ministry, he will raise the dead, proving again that he was God. He held the key to life and death. He says in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, 
but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In Genesis 18, verse 25, Yahweh was called the judge of all the earth, but the Father delegated this position to his Son, Jesus. Thus, Jesus is God's Son and your judge. It's important that you know that. Verse 23 is a stronger statement still. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father shares his honor and glory with the Son. Thus, to disrespect one is to disrespect the other. You know, often you hear a person say, oh, I'm good with God. Yeah, me and the man upstairs, man, we we were tight, man. You heard people say that. Yet the same person rejects Jesus. Hey, despite what they say, they don't know God. They don't honor God if they reject his son. For most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Our world is a walking graveyard full of moving, breathing corpses headed for judgment. People today are alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. Only when they take seriously the words of Jesus do they pass from death to life. And then he says, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of God. The Old Testament, particularly Daniel 7 verse 13, refers to Messiah as the Son of Man. And here Jesus claims to be Him. God created life. And He's given to Jesus the authority to judge humans and to distribute eternal life. I hope you know Jesus is the only authorized dealer in eternal life. That's right. To live forever with God, you're going to have to go through Jesus. You might as well accept him. And in verse 28, Jesus makes this grand, colossal statement. It's so hard to believe. He even starts out, do not marvel at this. Believe it. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Humans who have lived on this earth and died still exist spiritually. And one day, the flesh and bone body that they occupied, whether buried or whether cremated, will be resurrected and reunited with their spirit. Even bodies blown up in war. Even bodies dismembered in injury, God still has the power to gather their molecules and to perform a miracle of resurrection. But here's the point. Who is it that's going to oversee this miracle? And who is it who's going to assign those resurrected people a destination? The answer, it's Jesus He will determine whether you're resurrected to eternal life or whether you're resurrected to condemnation. 
That's why Jesus is such a big deal. Hey, hey, you won't be able to ignore him then. I suggest you don't ignore him now. Jesus goes on to say, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus was humble. Ironically, the universal judge never took his own initiative. All that Jesus did was sink to God's will. He was a spokesman for his father. And then he says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, Jesus is drawing now on the protocol of the Jewish courts. You see, a single testimony in a Jewish court was inadmissible. It took two or three witnesses to validate the testimony. So here, Jesus tells us not to simply accept his word. He now appeals to five witnesses as proof that he is God. First is John the Baptist. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John the Baptist had testified that Jesus was the Messiah. But there's another witness in this case for Jesus, his own miracles. He says, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. It's interesting, though modern scholars enjoy casting doubt on the legitimacy of Jesus' miracles, it's interesting that no one alive at the time ever denied their authenticity. And its enemies said that he worked his miracles by sorcery or by demonic power, but they couldn't deny that the miracles happened. Too many eyes saw that they occurred. Even the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, not a Christian, by the way, called Jesus a doer of startling deeds. His miracles testified of his deity. Then verse 37 highlights a third witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. The Father in heaven testified of Jesus at both his baptism and at his transfiguration. You remember in both those incidents, the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet the Jews didn't hear God's voice. Jesus says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. See, God set it up spiritually so that you have to believe him to hear him. The Jews refused to believe, thus they never heard. And then the fourth witness of Jesus is the scripture, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The Old Testament is the story of Israel, but it's more For God weaved into that story types and prophecies pointing to his son. The Jews read and knew the scripture, but they missed 
the point of God's story. They failed to see Jesus. Jesus says in verse 40, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this has been the sad history of the Jews ever since. They rejected Jesus, then they fell for every false Messiah who came after him. They did. And then in verse 44, Jesus asks, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And the fifth witness that testifies of Jesus' deity was Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses called Messiah a prophet like himself. Moses spoke of Jesus. So why didn't the Jews believe in him? Instead, they plotted to kill Jesus. See, the Jews rejected his five-fold witness. They rejected John the Baptist and what his miracles said of Jesus and the Father from heaven. They rejected his words. They rejected the scripture. And finally, they even rejected Moses. Please, don't you reject Jesus. Instead, drink his living water and you'll never thirst again. Father, we thank you.